Let's go to Luke chapter 24 as we start this series on the Bible. We want to say welcome to you Taunton campus watching by video every single week. We love you guys. Everybody in North Attleboro, let's give them a big hand. Tell them we love them. It is the most beloved book of all time. It is the most hated book of all time. It is the biggest book of controversy in our nation and in our world. It has been banned, adored, followed, and ignored. It has stood the test of time, doubts, fears, and failings of men. Dictators have tried to eliminate it. Scientists have tried to belittle it. False teachers have tried to twist it. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, talking and basing our lives on it, the Bible. We say it's the Word of God. It is the most popular, most widely read, most widely circulated book the world has ever seen. Every single day in America, every day, 168,000 copies of the Bible are sold. Every single day. By the time this message is over, 3,500 copies will have been sold from the beginning. It is on everybody's shelf just about. It is in everybody's conscience uh, to some extent. It is all over the world in hundreds of countries. And we are just one church in just this one town, in this one state, in this one country that gets together on the weekend and talks about this book. We should be excited about having this book. There's something about this book. It does something to us. It changes lives. It opens eyes. It illuminates hearts. And it is the text that people have died to preserve and translate and share and study and proclaim. There's something about this book. I know that there are people that are like, they like, they like Shakespeare. And I know that there's people that, that, that they, like, they like classical literature. But nobody dies for Shakespeare. No, 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 no English professor in the history of the world has ever given his life to translate Shakespeare into the common language. But we have our Bible in English today because of men like William Tyndale and John Knox who went to their deaths to give you a Bible and me a Bible that you could read. Now, when you endeavor to do a a message series on the Bible, you are faced with this daunting test because I don't know if you've checked it out recently, but it's a very long book. It's long. How do I cover everything? Well, I'm not going to cover everything, but I am going to set a foundation for you and for our church on how you use it, how to make the most of it, how to glean from it everything that God wants to glean, to you to glean from. And I believe that if you apply these principles to your life, it will change your life. It'll empower you, it'll feed you, and it will start you on a lifelong adventure that, listen to me, 
take it from about 30 years of experience now of just talking and loving the Bible, it is better as the time goes on. It's wonderful. And so today, I want to set a foundation for the series. Because when somebody tells you to read a book, right? You have a friend, they come to you, they say, you've got to read this book. Or, or they come and say, you've got to see this movie. I just saw this movie. You can't imagine what this movie is about. And, they can, and it's like they're the best things to slice bread. And they want you to read the book or see the movie, right? And you're thinking to yourself, is this book worth my time? Is this book or movie worth the effort, the money, whatever? Should I really go. So what is, when somebody recommends a book or a movie to you, what's the first question that you ask them? What is it about? What is it about? And you want to know. <laughs> Give me the gist. Give me the summary. Because if it's a murder story, I don't really like those. I like comedies. I don't want to go. Or if it's a drama, I really am not into those dramatic movies. I, I'm into, you know, Blues Brothers kind of stuff. That's my flavor. Or whatever. And, and, and you, and you want to know what is the book about to see if it's worth investing your time. And so today, the, the, the study that I, the, the question that I want to answer for you is this. What is this book about? What's the Bible about? Can you sum up the Bible in one paragraph? How many people think I can do that? Wow. That's bad. Okay. Uh, God has something to do with it, right? Um, anyway, how many of you, you know, I, how many think that I can sum up the Bible in one paragraph? I'm watching who's not raising their hands, by the way. <laughs> My goodness. How many think that I could do it in one sentence? How, how many think that I could do it in one word? Ooh, confidence, I love it. I can sum up the Bible for you in one word. Jesus. That's what the Bible is all about. It is not... A religious document, although, you know, you could classify it that way, but it's not primarily that. It is not an ancient history, although it has ancient history that has been proven reliable time and time and time again in archaeological studies. It is not primarily an ancient history, and this is going to shock some people. It is not a moral code, primarily. It has the best moral code out there. Absolutely, it's the most perfect law for mankind the world has ever seen. Yes, but it is not primarily about being moral. And our touchy-feely culture here in America loves to call it this new phrase. It's, it's, you've heard it. God's love letter to me. How self-absorbed. <laughs> because if you've ever read it, it's the strangest love letter you will ever read. Because three chapters in, one brother's killing another brother. Four more chapters in, there's a guy sleeping with two women. I mean, there's, all over the place, there's murder, lies, adultery, thefts, and sin, blood, sacrifices, all this kind of stuff. Wow, what a beautiful, weird love letter. <laughs> the Bible is not those things primarily. Listen to me if you listen to nothing else tonight. 
the Bible is about Jesus. And I'm not talking about just the New Testament. I'm talking about the whole shebang. From Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. So Luke chapter 24, I hope you're there. I gave you plenty of time to get there. <laughs> let's stand and let's read from verse 13. This is a very um, popular verse of scripture for Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, but how many know we don't just celebrate the resurrection on Easter? Jesus is alive every day. Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, somebody say Jesus himself, himself. drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Listen, this is right after the crucifixion, three days, they have no idea that Jesus is alive. And they stood still looking sad, verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But, but him they did not see. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. I want you to hear that verse most of all. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, in all the scriptures, he interpreted them, the things concerning himself. Wow. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? Let's pray. Father, I sincerely ask that as we talk about Jesus and as we open the scriptures, our hearts will burn, our eyes will be opened, and we will be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a seat.
The Bible is all about Jesus. Not just the New Testament. The whole thing. Listen, listen, the Bible's not even about God only. <laughs> People say the Bible's about God. You know, other things tell us about God than the Bible. Did you know that? It's not just the Bible that tells us about God. In fact, the Bible even tells us that other things tell us about God than the Bible. Psalm 19, verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Romans 1.20 says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. The translation is this. Everything that we see tells us about God. But the Bible is about Jesus. God's son. You see, God's a father. And he has a firstborn son. His name's Jesus. And he's a proud dad. He's writing a book. He's going to write one book. He's going to write about his son. You know, when a guy has a son, it just changes everything. He just goes to work that day, big smile on his face. He's got to tell everybody, you want to see my son? Looks like a little raisin. You know what I'm talking about? That's my son. That's what he is. That's what he looks like. No, give him a chance. He'll look better than that sooner or later. Right? God is like any dad. He wants you to know about his son. And so he writes this book using men. And he illustrates for most of the book about a son through these signs, symbols, types, and shadows. Because God is an excellent author. <laughs> He's a really good writer. And he uses all these symbols and all these types and shadows to, to hint at what really is coming later in his son. And so when you look at the Bible and you don't look at Jesus, it can get very, very confusing. How many of you have ever, have ever done this? You, you get to the new year, January 1st comes around, and you say, that's it, this year I'm reading the Bible. It's the whole thing. And I'm gonna commit to it this year, and I'm gonna stick with it this year. I don't know why it didn't work in the last year, but the other year, but this year I'm serious. And you go for it, and you're all excited for January, and you get into to, uh, Genesis, and it's exciting, and there's murder, and conspiracy, and adultery, and sex, and all kinds of cool stories, and you're like, this, why don't I read this more often, right? And then you get into February, and it's blistering cold, and you don't feel like reading, but you still do it because you committed, and you get midway through Exodus. <laughs> you're laughing because many of you have done this. And it's like you hit a wall, bam! And you're looking at all these things, and it's talking about don't eat this meat, eat that meat, don't eat this hoof, eat that wing, don't work that day, work this day, celebrate this festival while living in tents, move out of your house and give it to somebody else, and all these kind of weird things. And, and, and if you really want to make sure that your wife is a virgin when you marry her, then have this procedure done. I mean, it's just like, what the... All these sacrifices, all these, all these laws and regulations, these endless genealogies about who begat, who begat, who begat, who. I mean, it is crazy. And you will look at that text and you will say to yourself, maybe next year I'll read the Bible. Because I always tell people, don't start in Genesis, okay? Because, look, when you read the Bible, 
without Jesus in mind, it becomes very confusing. And these guys are walking along this road to their hometown of Emmaus or whatever on resurrection day. That very day, it said on verse 13, that very day. Resurrection morning. How many think that's a pretty important day in church history? Jesus has just risen. And what would you do if you were in a coma for a really long time and they suddenly resuscitated you or you came back you know, to consciousness? What's the first thing that you would do? Eat pizza, call your mom, hug your wife, your spouse, whatever, hug your kids. I bet that whatever you would do the day after you wake up from a coma would be a very, a very telling thing about what's important to you. Well, Jesus has kind of woken up from a coma. He's not really woken up from a coma. He's risen from the dead. All right, this is, the, this is like, you know, three days. Jesus loves to minister. Jesus loves to do things. Jesus is active. And he's had to be inactive for three days. Really, he was in hell kicking the devil's butt. But he's back. And, and now, what's the first thing that he does on resurrection morning? He doesn't eat. He doesn't call his mom. I mean, that's, you know, come on. She gave birth to you. All right. I mean, he doesn't do any of that stuff. What does he do? He has a Bible study. He has a Bible study with two guys on the way to Emmaus. And the Bible is funny, man. Because Cleopas, and, and some people believe it was his wife, are all depressed because they think Jesus is dead. The, the dream is dead. It's over. And they're wondering, oh, man, what are we going to do now? Our hopes are on this guy. He's dead. Here he comes. He stands with them. He walks with them. He gets to know them. He wants to know what they're talking about. And uh, he's like, you know, are you the only visitor around here? What's up with you? Where have you been? Under a rock? And he talks to Jesus about Jesus. I think that's funny. <laughs> you know, up in heaven, Cleopas is going to be walking around like, don't say a word. I know. <laughs> you know? I mean, because here's the guy who told Jesus about Jesus and thought he knew the deal. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and Jesus, you know, he's so patient. If there's one thing that I love about Jesus, it's how patient he is with our ignorance. Aren't you glad about that? Yeah. I tell you, sometimes I look at my files, some messages that I spoke years ago, and I'm just like, what on earth what I, was I thinking? <laughs> and if you were here, I apologize. Because, you know, I didn't have the understanding. And, and you know what? Someday I'm going to look back at these messages and say, what was I thinking? Because we are in this consistent, you know, moving forward of revelation, understanding who Jesus really is, and we never really fully grasp it until glory. But I'm telling you something. I love the fact that Jesus puts up with our ignorance for years. He's patient. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, I don't even know if you're here and you want to be with Jesus. Maybe you don't even want. Maybe you're just checking it out. Maybe somebody dragged you here. Jesus is patient, man. He will put up with your arrogant ignorance <laughs> for years. But eventually, he's going to say, Erk. 
all right, enough. I, okay, we got to move on. And he says, you foolish guys, come on. Slow of heart to believe. This is what was written. And, and then let's put it up on the screen, verse 27. This is, this, this is the key. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. Jesus says, okay, let's, let's have a Bible study. Turn to Genesis. Okay, there's me. Exodus, me too. Leviticus, lots of me there. This looks a little strange. Numbers, that's me, that's me. The cloud and the fire, that's me, by the way. Joshua, guy with the sword in his hand, Joshua, about, that's me too. Just, you know, right through <laughs> all these kings, yeah, they were my great, 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 great grandfathers, and they were kind of dumb. <laughs> David, that's me. Solomon, that's me. All that stuff. It just goes through the whole thing. Could you imagine this Bible study? For seven miles they walk and listen to the greatest teacher that has ever walked on the face of the earth talk about the book that he wrote about himself. Wow! And, and, and no wonder why by the time the thing is over, their hearts are just inflamed. And they're hearing. Now, now look, they're hearing about Jesus from the scriptures and their eyes are opened, and their hearts start to burn, and suddenly they see. This is why we are doing this right now, right here. Why do we open the Bible? Why do we do this? Why, why will we never, ever, ever become one of those socially driven churches or one of those ideological churches, one of those Republican churches or Democrat churches, conservative churches, liberal churches. Why are we never going to do that? Because that doesn't change anybody. We are going to open the scriptures. We are going to talk about Jesus and hearts will come aflame and eyes will be open and lives will be changed. That's how it works. That's how it works. And we see it time and time again in this church. People go through the waters of baptism. Water is a baptism, every testimony, and, and I saw, and it's dawned on me, and suddenly I realized, and the testimonies over and over and over and over and over again of how one day the lights went on. How? Because we open the Bible, we talk about Jesus, and hearts are changed, and eyes are open, and lives are reborn. The Bible must be read with Jesus in mind. Now, I'm, I'm going to show you how there are types and shadows in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And I'm going to show you th three examples. <clears throat> you all know me. I can only do three points a weekend. <laughs> and so there's many others, but I'm going to give you three. How Jesus is in these three types and shadows in the Old Testament. So if you're taking those, very important. Number one, Jesus is in the events of the Old Testament. He is in the events of the Old Testament. One of the most profound events of the Old Testament is Passover. Passover, what does that mean? Where do we get that idea? Well, the backstory is Israel, God's people, Abraham's children, are enslaved for 400 years to a pharaoh in Egypt. And pharaoh has this real big ego. He believes he's God. Just point of note, when someone around you thinks they're God, they have an ego problem. And God does not put up with that for very long. And so God sends Moses, and he, 
he brings on 10 plagues on the land, and all 10 plagues are, in, are the powers of, of Pharaoh's gods, like turning the water to blood and, and uh, locusts and frogs, all the, all the gods that the Egypt's, Egyptians worship. And God kind of like just plays with them. You think you know who your God is? Well, let me show you who God is. And he just kind of like toys with them. Well, it, you know, Pharaoh is stubborn and he won't let the people go. And so on the last plague, God says, Moses, this is it now. I'm telling you, after this one, he's going to let you go. He's going to beg you to leave. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come through the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites live. And I'm going to come in the passing of a death angel. And I'm going to kill the firstborn son of everybody. But I'm going to spare the Israelites. Here's how you guys make it. And you know, maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. But he says, you get in your house, you bring in a lamb, you kill the lamb. You take the blood of the lamb. You go outside your house and you apply to the door frame of your house the blood of the lamb. Then you go inside the house while I pass through the land, killing all the firstborn, and, and when I see the blood in the house, I'm going to pass over you. That's where we get the name. And so you have to think about this. It's like, you, you know, you're, you're an Israelite slave. And Moses has been doing all these great miracles and all these great powers and locusts and, and frogs and thunderstorms and all this kind of stuff, darkness, and all these really powerful plagues. And then he says, okay, here's the last one. And you're like, okay, this one is really going to knock it out of the park. What are we going to do? And, and Moses is like, you're going to kill a lamb. Huh? Come again? Kill a lamb? We're going to kill a lamb? Or is God going to kill a lamb? You're going to kill the lamb. And you're going to take the blood of the lamb. And you're going to smear it on your doorpost. And then you're going to go in the house and eat together and celebrate a feast. And it's going to start the new year for you. All this kind of stuff, all this kind of Im imagery happens. And, and here's what it says in Exodus 12, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And skipping ahead in verse 13, here's what God says. He says, the blood shall be a sign for, next word, you. On the houses where you are, and when, God's still speaking, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you and destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, 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 check verse 13 out with me just for one more moment here. God says the blood is going to be a sign for you, but they already smeared it on the doorpost and went in the house. How could it be a sign for them if God's the one saying that I'm going to see it and spare you? Who's the sign for? Both. That there's something happening that's deeper than just a plague. That when you apply the blood to the door, first off, the door posts and the lintel. Imagine that night you're applying the blood. What direction are your hands going? The doorposts and the lintel with the blood. And God says, I'm going to see it, but it's going to be a sign for you. Well, what are you talking about, God? Trust me, you'll understand when Jesus comes along. Because here's what happens. Jesus shows up. And John the Baptist is the only one who has a clue of what's going on. 
And he says in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, look, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our Passover lamb. And like the Israelites who were delivered that night from Egypt, when you apply the blood of Jesus to your lives spiritually, you are set free from bondage to sin and shame and hell and death. You are released in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. The blood is a sign for you. What's God doing? He's foreshadowing. He's showing you how this is all going to work out long before it ever works out. Number two, Jesus is in the people of the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> one of the most famous characters of the Old Testament is David, one of my favorites. In fact, Jesus is called the son of David. Now, you know David's story, cool story, all you young people who tend to get picked last on the dodgeball team. David's your boy. Because Samuel tells the nation, I'm going to find a new king. Saul's gone haywire. He's out of control. We need a new guy, and God's got him in mind, and God sends him to Jesse's house. Jesse's got eight sons. Jesse's all proud. Yes, one of my sons is going to be king. So he goes and he selects the seven boys out of eight that he thinks are worthy of the kingship. And he parades them through Samuel's line. And there's Eliab, and he's tall, and he's strong. Shemaiah, he's tall, and he's strong. God says, nope, mm -mm, nope, move on, nope, next, nope, 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 don't look at the outside. Don't look at the outside, I'm looking at the heart. He says, hey, this is seven, you got eight, where's the eighth? He goes, oh, I left him out in the sheep pen, because I didn't think he was king material. That's how God works. He says, go get him, we won't go anywhere until he catches David comes in, God says, that's him, anoint him. And the Bible says that Samuel takes the oil, breaks it over David's head, and anoints him king in front of his eight brothers who were stewing in the corner. And, and then a little later, there's war with the Philistines, and there's this guy named Goliath, and Goliath is taunting the Israelites, and he's challenging them, you send your best warrior, and I'll come out there and fight him, and whoever wins, the other nation will serve the winners. And David is not even at the war, because not only did Jesse not trust him to be king, he, he didn't even trust him to be able to fight. He's still, now listen, David is anointed king now. And he is watching over the sheep of his father. And nobody knows he's king yet. Are you seeing where this is going? And David goes to the battle to bring bread and cheese to his brothers. And he finds out about Goliath. He says, I'll take him on. And Saul's like, no, you can't do it. He says, no, I can do it. Trust me, the Holy Spirit will help me. And he goes out to the battle. And Goliath sees little David come running out to the battlefield. Doesn't take him seriously. Like the St. Louis Rams didn't take the Patriots seriously so many years ago. And they just look, he's just looking at him. He says, am I a dog that you throw a stick at me? He says, come on over here. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David says, you come against me in the name, uh, in, in, in sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. 
And this day he shall give me into your hands and I will deliver your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And everybody's gonna know there's a God in Israel. Powerful story. He runs out with a sling, knocks the giant on the ground, comes over to the giant very specifically. Now here's what it says, verse 51 of Samuel 17. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took what? His sword, the Philistine's sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now all the men of Israel who had been hiding at that moment suddenly sees that Goliath is dead, suddenly have a whole bunch of courage, and they rise up and shout and pursue the Israelites of the Philistines as far as Gath, the gates of Ekron. And David takes the sword of the giant the sword of the giant that was a symbol of death and takes that symbol of death and puts to death the giant that was taunting Israel. Jesus comes along and he doesn't take down Satan with a sword. He takes down Satan, he takes down death with its own sword, with death on the cross, and he cuts off the head of death at the cross and lays out our giant which opposes us every single day. People are scared of death. They don't know about death. They are wondering what's after death. They don't know where they're going after death. Listen to me very carefully. Because of Jesus, you can face death with absolute confidence. The Bible says, where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, a direct descendant of King David. He's been there all along. Thirdly, and I think I've saved the best for last, really I have. Jesus is in the sacramental system of the Old Testament. So this is when you get to those laws and you're like, what the? How, how am I supposed to tell if my bride is a virgin on my wedding night again? <laughs> no, don't, you don't have to do that anymore. Jesus has fulfilled that. And there's all these laws and you get to that book Leviticus, right? Why don't we go there? Leviticus chapter 14. Stunning reading, enthralling when you read the book of Leviticus. Amen, somebody? <laughs> you don't know Leviticus then. This is one of the sacri sacrifices that God prescribed for the people of Israel in Leviticus. Here's what it is. Verse 2. These are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing when he is brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine him. And if the person is healed of his infectious skin disease... So right there, you know, just grabs you, sucks you right in. Great story here. Skin disease, priests, what is going on? And, and so somebody has been healed of their infectious skin disease, and they got to go to the priest. Why? Well, here's what's going to happen. Verse 4. The priest shall order that <clears throat> two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. 
He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious skin disease and pronounce him clean. Then he is to release the live bird into the open fields. Whoa. (laughs) Are you still with me? Just say amen if you're still with me. Wow, good, all right. Two birds, scarlet yarn, hyssop branch, cedar wood. One is killed over fresh water. So now you take the blood that falls into the fresh water. They take the the scarlet yarn. They put that in the water. They take the hyssop branch. They put that in the water. They take the cedar wood. They put that in the water. They take the dead bird, and they put that into the water, and they get this nasty little old mixture that every 12-year-old boy would be thrilled with, but you and I are disgusted by. And they take that mixture, and they sprinkle the person who has been healed of their infectious skin disease seven times. And they take the live bird, after it's been sprinkled, and they set it free. What on earth? How can I get blessed from that? That, You don't find Leviticus 14 in many Bible promise books, do you? Right? What's going on? Two birds killed for the cleansing of somebody who has an infection in the skin. In the New Testament, it's called our flesh. And all of our flesh is infected with something. It's called sin. And Jesus came to remove the disease of sin in our flesh. Why can't I do the things that I want to do? Because you are sick with sin. And I am too. We need the cleansing of Jesus. Now, why the blood? Why the water? I get the blood. We got that. We could cover that. Yeah, I understand. Why the water? Cedar wood? Scarlet yarn? Hyssop? What's going on? Let's look at some verses in the New Testament around the time that Jesus is put on the cross. Interesting things here. John 19, verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And what color was Jesus wearing as he carried the cross? Matthew 27, verse 27 to 28. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And as he hung on the cross, what did they offer him to drink? They offered him vinegar. And how did they get it to his mouth up on the cross? The Bible says in John 19, verse 29 to 30, a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. On top of all that, there is significant archaeological historical evidence to believe that the cross was made from cedar. Blood and water, hyssop branch, scarlet robe, cedar cross. Do you need any more evidence that what Jesus did from birth till death to rising from the grave had already been forecasted for thousands of years? How do you write a book so perfectly? How do you put all the pieces together so wonderfully and so intricately? You don't. God does. It's his book, and he wrote it this way to show us who Jesus is. It's all about Jesus. 
all about Jesus. And he walks for seven miles doing this with these two people from Emmaus. And eventually, they come to the place where they've got to turn off the road, and he, and he pretends he's going to go further. It says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Listen to me very carefully. Listen. I know I've gone long, but listen. It's great to hear about Jesus. It's great to come to church. It's great to hear sermons like this. But listen, at some point, you have to invite him in. You have to say, come into my house and stay with me. I, I, I don't want to stress this uh, too literally. I want you to hear me. You can go to church your whole life and still end up in hell. You can go through the motions. You can go through all the systems and the sacraments and the sacrifices and all that stuff. You can have the Bible memorized. The Pharisees did, and they didn't even know that it was about Jesus. You've got to ask him in. How do I know when I should? When the Holy Spirit is burning in your heart. And the light goes on. And you realize that Jesus is God's son sent to die for you. And you welcome him in. And he comes into their house. And he takes, he's at the table with them, verse 30. And he took the bread, blessed and broke it. Now, he's getting fancy on us. Because <laughs> he's not just fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Now he's going and fulfilling New Testament prophecies. And he gives it to them. And suddenly, after, listen, after hearing the scriptures, after hearing about Jesus, after spending time with him and asking him in, then, then, verse 31, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Why do we do what we do? Why are we here? We open the scriptures. We talk about Jesus. We break bread together. Hearts begin to burn. Eyes get opened, and lives are changed. I want you to stand with me.